Well, welcome, everybody. There are uh, so many places you could be on a Memorial Day weekend when the weather's like awesome. So thanks for being here. Uh, I'll do my best to uh, make it worth your while. Some of you may have even got married and you choose to show up here. So that's noticed. So we come to this issue of hate what is evil and cling to what is good in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And I have nearly every Sunday reviewed Romans chapter 12, 1 through 9. So I'm not going to do that again. I encouraged you folks last week. I was here to, to be reading your Bible um, uh, because it is... Uh, as one of my professors from college said, if you're not interested in what you're reading, you're not reading the right footnotes. Because Scripture, we so often as believers, have read the same text over and over and over, and we sort of become numb to it as if we were reading the night before Christmas and all through the house to our grandchildren. Those are very familiar words. They, we know what's coming next, and our mind kind of goes into numb mode as we start thinking about, when do I get dessert? And we read Scripture so often, I'd like you to do your best to read Scripture with as fresh of eyes as possible, uh, to do imaginative reading, try to figure out who the author of this letter is, what he was about, what his background was, who he's writing it to, what they're about and what their background is, and why he would say things to them that sound maybe so odd to us in 2018. And the reason they sound odd is because it wasn't written in 2018. It was written in, in 86 or 56 or 67, 30 years after Jesus was born. So that helps us to understand, men, you should have short hair. It helps us to understand texts like women, you should have head coverings. It helps us to understand texts like women should sit in the back of the church and be silent. Men should sit in the front of the church. We don't know how to understand those texts today. And for those who read shallowly, they put hats on their women and they put them in the back of the church. But for those who understand that the, the author and who he was writing to and recognizing that in that example, Ephesus was a major trading post in the New, uh, New Testament, and Ephesus housed the goddess Diana, or Aphrodite. And I'll, I'll spare you, not many children in here, but I'll spare you the details of who the god Aphrodite, goddess Aphrodite's was. And so you would have women who would work in that temple with various occupations. And these towns weren't millions and millions of people. We knew who was in town and who wasn't. So these women had a Rolodex, right, probably, of who showed up on Thursday and who showed up on Friday evening and who dropped by after work to let off a little stress and who showed up in the church on Sunday. So you can imagine 
potentially in this New Testament church that's just beginning with young Timothy as the pastor, young Timothy, handling these hardened women, if you will, who knew things about the town businessmen. It's a patriarchal society. So an easy fix was clearly this. Until we can get this sorted out, I I want you to tell them to stay in back and just be quiet. Let their husbands sort it out for them on the way home because lives are being destroyed. And before we can get this church built and on its feet, families are getting torn apart. We need to do some teaching. So does that put the context of some of those verses? Does that help you with that a little bit? It seems so obvious. So if the Bible's not interesting, you're not reading the right footnotes, people. Because it's some good stuff. And frankly, there are parts of Ezekiel that are downright R-rated. And let's certainly not dig too deep into the Song of Solomon. Or like my father said, it's real plain, it's real simple, it's in the Bible. I don't think Dad ever read the Bible, because there's some of it that's just really confusing. That requires us to engage it, heart, mind, and soul. And it can't be cleared up by someone yelling at us on a Sunday morning about, this is precisely the meaning of that text. Because I know no more precisely about the meaning of this text than you do about a love letter that I write to Susie. You don't live with us. You're not in our house. You don't know the nuances of our relationship. You don't know what happened on Thursday. You might completely misunderstand a sentence. And it might make you ladies go, oh, that's nice. And it might make you men go, ooh, I could never do that. I hope my wife doesn't read it. And it might move you But to claim you know the meaning, know the meaning, would be to claim you know what's inside my head and my heart, and you don't. Any more than I know what's inside yours, right? And so we have to approach our texts with this kind of humility. Because if we approach our text in in the Bible and we say, I know precisely what this means because I happen to be able to look up on the internet the meaning of a Greek word. I think we approach life in our congregations with an arrogance that is so subtle, but yet very much there. Folks, as much as I might like to tell you what to do, I can't. I got my own struggles with Scripture. I'm trying to figure it out, too. I'm wrestling with what it means when it says love must be sincere, and I still don't have it. And I may be able to get what Paul's saying, I think. But I fall flat on my face when I go to do it. Usually five times before breakfast. We have to come to a text humbly. We have to come to a text graciously. We have to come to our texts open-minded. And as someone who studies the text and has made a career out of studying to the texts, I have to come to you in that same way. If I come to you with the idea that I know, I become no better than the Gnostics and the cult, the cult of knowledge, uh, than some of the First Testament 
or of first century believers. Love must be sincere. In and of itself, that text alone absolutely undoes me. In and of itself, those four words undo me. I tell Susie I love you regularly. But when I really open my heart, put magnifying on my glass on myself, if I'm rawly honest with the places I don't want you to see, I really love myself actually more than her. And I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I hate that about me. Yet it's true. But acknowledging that somehow makes my love a little more sincere. Right? Just saying that, just being honest, just the courage to acknowledge that I fail in this text, Lord, I need you, somehow makes my love a little more sincere, doesn't it? Just knowing that. None of us loves perfectly. And so for Paul to say love must be sincere, then these next two things, simple, simple statements that absolutely undo us. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. You know I was involved in mountain rescue for a lot of, a lot of years. I'm going to say it in church because it's just an acronym. I was a member of the FART team for the state of Washington. Yes, it's being recorded. Report me to the deacons. It's the Fast Alpine Recovery Team, and it was organized out of headquarters for different park services and other things in the state of Washington. There were two of us from our county, and I had a special pager, so there was, there was a time in uh, the 80s and 90s when I wore two pagers, people. <laughs> well, it is important. Because as you recall my story, I was a new kid in school a lot. Nine times to be precise, right? And I was small until I finally grew my junior year. Everybody was an insider. It's like moving to Atoka County. The first question they ask you is, hi, I don't care what your name is, but who's your grandpa? And did he steal something from my grandpa or not? There are insiders and outsiders. And I grew up with this insider and outsider thing, and I was always an outsider. But now i got two pagers. The official people think I'm important. And it's cute to tell you that. And I tell you that as, as in a funny way, but you really have no idea of what that's like to be an outsider to suddenly be a trusted insider, endorsed by the powers that be, right? That fueled me. So my pager goes off one time, and I get dropped off high on uh, mix-up or magic. I forget which peak it was right now. It's been many years ago. The helicopter did a one-skid landing, comes in, does a one-skid landing, and drops me off. And I drop I. I drop my pack out and then I drop me off and I finish the climb by myself and find our victim. Our victim is a 50-something year old uh, man from 
Europe, who has sprained his ankle for the second time that summer. This was the second time I've seen him, two weeks later after the first time. And so we got him all uh, patched up and his ankle ready to go, and we got him into a harness, and the helicopter came back and did a one-skid landing. And I really didn't want to go with the helicopter, so this worked out perfectly. The guy had way too much stuff, so we put the guy in the helicopter. We throw his pack back in, in goes his ice axe, so on and so forth. I buckle the door, and the helicopter takes off. I am on the summit of a major North Cascade peak about 9 o'clock in the morning in the sunshine above the clouds by myself. The summit is about as big as the pulpit there. And I am alone. Now, if I had to get down, I've got ropes, and I I could have got myself down. It would have been a 10-hour hike back to the car. But the deal was the helicopter is going to come and get me. Well, the helicopter radioed up and said, we've got some errands to run, can we? And the helicopter put on a tagline and did did some work with some of the rescuers who had hiked all night and, and got them back out and did some hauling and then called me. The helicopter said, Mark, we need smoke because the wind had changed. I'm on the summit. So imagine this young Mark with two pagers on top of, let's just say, call it uh, Mix Up Peak for, for now. On top of Mix Up Peak by myself on a sunny day, always felt small, always felt not included. Now I've just done a rescue. And the helicopter at, in those days, $500 for a half hour, was coming to get me. And he wants me to give him some smoke. Crack the smoke, hold the smoke up, and the big orange billow comes out like this. Well, this time he left his tag light on. So we have a 150-foot tag line on the bottom of this helicopter. No one skid landing this time. This time it's a, a, a basket that drops down to me. And I step in the basket, still got my smoke going, and we do uh, what's called a flyaway, where the helicopter has now got a load, and it takes a lot of power to go straight up at 8,500 feet. So he just gets me floated, and then he just drops down into the valley to get speed. And 150 feet below that, I just, oh, can you see me telling you this story? How much I liked it? Now, here's next week at the Rotary, at the Rotary Banquet. And we'd like to introduce uh, one of our lead mountain rescue people, uh, Mark Eaton, and he's going to tell you about a recent rescue we had. Ladies and gentlemen, all of us in the rescue business, we risk our lives on a regular basis to save the lives of others. You know how much baloney that was? I do it because it's a hoot. And I did it because I was going to get my picture in the paper the next day. And I do it because I can show Susie now A photo of that moments after it's happened. You can see the basket in the background, helicopter blade still still turning, and me walking away like Clint Eastwood out of the fire. (laughs) Love must be sincere. But I, I have to tell you, so often I tell you that I love sincerely, and I told the Rotary Club that my motives were pure, but they're not. They're not. So often they're not. And either are yours. The conundrum for us is this. When we pretend that our motives are pure about life and that our love is pure and good and well, we actually end up not getting 
the love and respect that we really want to because somehow we come across as self-promoting, right? But when we admit that we don't love well, we admit that this is hard for us to understand, and we drop into an honest place of integrity and humility and admit that we fail, it's really curious how what we actually want, we actually begin to get when we drop demanding it. Did that make sense? If I were to approach you folks and demand your respect, you'd pick that up in about a month and I'd be fired. But if I approach you folks honestly, self-revealing, and with a hopefully authentic humility, somehow what I want matches what you want and we get what we want, and that's called intimacy. And that's how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in heaven. They each serve the other through this incredible authenticity. When we try to protect ourselves and be someone we're not, we never get what we actually want. When we try to protect ourselves, we never get what our heart really longs for. When we give it up and live in humility we tend to get more of what our heart longs for. Hate what is evil. I've got four points on that. First, for those of you who, those, those of you who are note takers, and I think it's only the people who watch on live feed that are note takers. Otherwise, I'd be hearing this. Hate what God hates. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Point number one. Hate what God hates. Let me read to you what God hates, but more what God loves. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfless, selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, and envy, drunkenness, orgy, and the like, which I, I find that really humorous that he threw in there, and the like, in case I missed a few, right? Because he probably had some folks in there who said, well, Paul never mentioned this, So he just covers it with, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are strong words. Verse 22, but. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Susie? Just one at a time. Joy. Love. Joy. Patience, <laughs> goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Which is what I said last week. They can never outlaw prayer in school. You can never outlaw gentleness. They'll never be able to outlaw kindness. They'll never be able to prevent us from love. They can write all the laws they want, but you can't stop love. 
So what does God hate? Those things in Galatians chapter 5. What this text says is essentially hate what is evil. It essentially means hate what God hates because God defines evil too. It's easy to become numb to evil. Have you ever had a dishonest boss? And you watched him write into contracts things that have already been paid for. And he'd build those things that have already been paid for once by another customer, write that into a contract for another customer. It would be as if Susie and I uh, bought a $1,000 plane ticket to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And then we got another job in that same area, and we build them the plane ticket. And then we got a third or fourth job, and we build each of them full price for the plane ticket up there. Evil, in my mind. Susie, if I did that, would not respect me. In trying to get rich, I would not get what I really want, which is love and respect from her, because she'd see me cheat. She'd see me deceive a customer. She'd lose trust for me. So if I ever told her, well, this is how it went down, and this is where the money went, she'd go, yeah, I've seen what you do. She'd never say that because she wants to keep peace in the family, but she feels it. And I wonder, why doesn't she trust me? It's because I've taught her not to. Are you with me? I've taught her not to. She's observed me cheat. And she's learned her lessons very well. Hate what is evil. Essentially hate what God hates, and God hates unfair balances and dishonest bosses and dishonest employees. It's easy to become numb to evil when we're around it, when we see it so often, we tolerate it, we ignore it. And in some cases, I'll say this very strongly, we embrace it because it works for us. Sometimes we embrace evil because it works for us. Look at your own lives. Don't look around the room. Thirdly, hate what is evil. Most of us approach evil or evil approaches us not like some flaming mouthed dragon that says, I am evil. We know what that is, right? We would run away from that. That would be way too evil for even the evilest amongst us. And by the way, this is why This is why the Hollywood and movies do not tend to make evil very nuanced. They make good guys who struggle a little bit with evil and bad guys who might have a little bit of good in them. But typically it's good guys and bad guys. And the bad guys are really evil and easy to spot. The music changes, they're dressed in black, and their head is shaved. And they walk into the room with the attitude. And we know before they even speak, here's a bad guy. Because we have difficulty understanding that evil might be able to get us. And if it came to us as good guys, bad guys, super, we'd never get it. But evil so often comes to us in nuanced and subtle ways as we fail to love. 
And you may say to yourself, I don't have a lot of evil in me. And I say, then you love perfectly what you don't. When you and I fail to love, evil has had its way in us. When I defend and guard my own dignity, reputation, more than I love, and that doesn't mean roll over and be a doormat, by the way. Sometimes it might mean to face. When I defend my dignity more than I love, evil has had its way in me. So anytime, one, this might be a way to think about it. Anytime you're tempted to say, I told you so, I would suggest to you that that's a little bit of evil. Because you want the other person to know, I was right, I was right all along. I've been suffering quietly while you do your thing. And I'm not really too commit to that it's going to fail because I want to, I want to keep my ace as close to my chest in case it does succeed. But when it does go bad, I told you it was not going to work out. And I feel big again. And I don't feel evil. It's completely justified. You see, evil doesn't come to us as this raging monster. Evil comes to us looking good. Looking justified. Evil, most of the time, according to my notes, presents itself as a style of relating to others in the world. Evil, lastly, point four, is hardest to see in ourself. Remember we talked about the doctrine of nice and how that's different than kindness? Niceness can be extremely, extremely manipulating. Charm can be extremely manipulating. But it comes under the category of being nice. And so we don't see the evil in the manipulation because we can justify it. We always see ourselves as righteous. Lucifer is known as who? The angel of? If the Bible's not interesting, you're not reading the right stuff, people. Lucifer always comes to us completely justified. Mark, no, of course you were right. You had that nailed. You saw that coming. No, she hurt you first. No, of all the things that she's done. No, you deserve. No, Mark, you've got it. Lucifer comes to me and helps me justify my lack of love. Helps me justify my self-worship and my self-focus. He never comes to me and says, Mark, kill that person. <laughs> That's too obvious. I'd never do it. But he'll whisper to me, Mark, undress that person with your words and leave them exposed. Kill their heart. Oh, I can do that. That's completely justified. So some couples spend their energy exposing each other. Look at what you did. Oops, that was a mistake. Turn here. Turn there. Oh, what a let me tell you what my husband did last night. When we know it's sensitive. But we want to expose them. You see, it seems good. It seems funny. It seems like a joke. But evil never comes as a roaring monster. It always looks funny. Looks good. 
Couples, spend your energy protecting each other, covering each other. If you spend your energy exposing each other, get some help. Some of us have called evil good. And that's what we're going to look at at the end of today's service. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Hate is a thought, it's an attitude, it's a posture. Cling, on the other hand, and amazingly enough, we're going to move on in this text. (laughs) Make a note of that. Cling to what is good. That word cling means to bond, to adhere, to join to, to keep company with. It could even mean to cling. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to paint a word picture for you here. If hate, which by the way, a poor, is used one time in the New Testament, and it's in this passage right here, the hate part. Cling is used a number of times, has to do with forming relationships, cleaving to, bonding, associating with. A poor hate what is evil is an attitude and a posture. Cling is a physical act. Are you with me? Grab onto them. Every parent knows them, knows this idea of I'm clinging to my kids. Blake, right now. What's it mean to cling to your kids? Luke chapter 16 Jesus comes to the Pharisees and he says this. The Pharisees who loved money heard all that Jesus was saying and they were sneering at him. And he said, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable. In God's sight. So if hate what God hates is a part of hating what is evil, clinging to what God loves is a part of love must be sincere. These two thoughts, ladies and gentlemen, are linked. Love must be sincere, period. The next thoughts are linked. See that semicolon there? That's a super semicolon. That's a super comma. It means these two are linked. And I hope you get that image before we get out of here today. First of all, I want you to think about this. Spot what is good in another, and it can be hard. It's hard to see what's good in another. But it can be really hard to do. I was at a lumber yard in a, in a town nearby recently. And this fellow with tattoos and covered hair, colored hair and He had a variety of piercings, saggy pants. He wore skater shoes, and his hair was cut in one of those ways that grandparents hate. Was gathering my lumber for me. And I had already formed my judgment about this fellow, right? As you would, too. And I caught myself forming my judgment, and I said, no. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil, cling to what is good. And by the way, piercings and tattoos and saggy pants are not evil. 
They might be symptoms of some evil, but they're not evil. If you hate the piercing, you'll miss the person. Sometimes high schoolers and college kids put in nose rings to jack us around. And when you hate them, they control you. You're doing exactly what they want. Are you with me? Wow. An 18-year-old is controlling you, 50-year-old. He is ruining your day with his music. You think you're big and tough? Little punky 18-year-old is running your life right now. Boom, boom, boom. Here in Atoka, he's messing up the whole town. We got to get these. He's in your head, man. You're not as big and powerful as you thought you were, were you? He controls you. Don't let the pants and the shirt and the piercings and the tattoos control you. This guy grabs my lumber, he pushes it over the edge. Jumps over the railing in a way I used to be able to. Catches himself with one foot. Lands on both sides. Drops down, swings down, grabs the bottom, swings out, and turns and lands in front of me. Boom. It was awesome. (laughs) Now, I've been around athletes most of my life, and that's an athlete. But I also know he's not living it out right now. He's not... So I said, you ever, you ever climb, uh, climb rocks? Oh, I've always wanted to. I see it on TV. So I had a 20-minute conversation with this guy. Not about rock climbing, although had you heard us, it might have been about rock climbing, but it was about building relationships. And at the end, I said, by the way, nice tat. Where did you get that done? He said, I did it to myself. Another 10 minutes. You did it to yourself. Holy cow. I see you've got tats. And he asked, I said, yeah, there's my wife's name right there. Wow, that's nice work. Anyway, yeah, good to see you. Hey, figure out how you can rock climb. Oh, by the way, my name's Mark. I'm the pastor up at Cornerstone. Come see us. Are you with me? We might see him someday. And you're going to love him. Because you're going to love sincerely, without hypocrisy. You're going to hate what's evil, but you're going to cling to what's good. And I saw in that kid, I saw athlete. I spoke to it. His eyes lit up. Probably got in trouble from his boss. But we had a great chat. And I invited him to come to the door of the kingdom. Right? Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Children make mistakes. When I was a young boy... I smelled gas out by our trailer. Now, I didn't know that, that propane tanks had pressure relief valves. And when they sat in the sun all afternoon, they leaked off a little pressure. So I smelled the propane. And Dad's not home. I went and got a pair of pliers and went and tightened up the handle. And I scratched up the handle a little bit. And, well, Dad, later on, went to try to open the tank up, and he couldn't do it. And then he noticed the scratch marks. And then he came to see me. Mark, come with me. He said, did you try to tighten this up? I was so afraid of my dad that I lied. Because the truth often didn't set me free. The truth often got me a licking. So I was so afraid of my dad that I lied. 
And he tells me, there's these scratch marks. Somebody's put a plier on this. I don't know, Dad. And I stuck with it. And I hated myself. And now that I'm in deep, I continued with it anymore. He put his arm on me and said, well, I knew he knew I did it. He put his arm on me and he said, well, whoever did this, they tried to, they tried to shut off the propane. I, I see what they were doing. It sets here in the sun. And, and whoever did it probably smelled the propane and really tried to help. So anyway, he gave me a backhanded compliment. He wisely let me sit in my lie, but he spoke to what was good. Smart man. And in doing that, he exposed me. And so later on, I told him, Dad, do you remember that? No, not really. I lied through my teeth. He said, I don't remember it. And I said, well, here's what you did. Thank you. Spot what is good. Secondly, call to the good in people. When you're tempted to expose them, call to the good. Kids do stuff. Adults do stuff. And we tend to think they're all evil. They're all bad. No, but they're just like us. Speak to the good. I see what you're trying to do here, or I saw that, or all your piercings and tattoos, that's what you present, but I see some good in there. Speak to that good and watch folks turn and look at you. And they will have one question for you, and the question will be this. Are you messing with me? Because if you are, I'm out of here. Is your love sincere? They'll stare you down when you speak to what's good because most of us are so used to having the bad spoke to us. So you can see how Paul is undoing this society here. We're so used to having the bad spoke to us when someone says, I see what you're doing. I see that. I want to talk to that guy. I want to let that guy out. We go, don't mess with me. Are you sincere? Is your love real or are you just manipulating me? And if they sense that our love is sincere, sincere, our church makes an impact in the community in a wise way, in a smart way, because we speak to what is good. Hate what is evil. Speak to what is good. If you want to expose people, catch them doing something right. Catch him doing something right. Catch him doing something right and say to it, Hey, attaboy, I see what you're doing. Good job. Catch him doing something right. Folks, uh, I want to offer a bit of a challenge to us. And as Clay comes up and, and has one more song for us, So often, I claim that in my life that really when something's loaded with multiple levels of motivation and can really actually be evil or wrong, that I twist it so that it works for me. I reframe it so that it works for me. And some of us have been claiming that evil is good. In your own life, you've been claiming evil is good. You haven't hated evil. You've loved evil. Your love hasn't been sincere. Your love has been manipulative. 
to get what you want. And if there's a challenge this morning for you as, as we stand in a few minutes and the band leads us, it's examine your heart and see if you have been loving evil, embracing evil. Because it goes like this. Love to be sincere has to whisper to evil. What you're doing is wrong, but it has to cling to what's good. So as I approached that, that guy and I spoke to him, boom, I'll bet you're an athlete. Wow, I can see it everywhere. I'm earning the right to whisper, hey, I see the other stuff too. And when Jesus, or when God in the heavenlies sees our evil, he sends Jesus, boom, boom, like a baby, to whisper, I'm here to redeem you. But I'm not letting go. Husbands, if you need to talk to your wife about something that hurts you, embrace Hold a little finger, sit face to face on the couch playing toesies, and then gently whisper, here's what I felt from you. Give me some feedback. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. But here's the evil. And I'll own my stuff too. As you in return say, I'm not letting go. And folks, what we long for, intimacy in relationship, Kaboom, it just happens. When we love what's evil, we don't get what we really want. When we don't cling to the good, we don't get what we really want. For our love to really be what we long for as humans, we've got to whisper to the evil and cling to the good. And that's, that's the image I want to offer you with your grandkids, with your spouses this week. If you think you've been hating what's evil, then as this song, as this song happens, and stand up with, you, with me as Clay begins to play. As, if you think you've been hating or loving what's evil, do that work right now as the lights come down. Do that work quietly, and you can pray in your own hearts.